Bibleist Literature Podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It's tempting to think that the study of literature, the discipline of hearing and understanding the written word, is more accessible than the so-called hard sciences. Our collective laziness bolsters this ill-conceived but commonly held view. Unlike Semitic languages, anyone can pronounce English words correctly without analyzing grammar or syntax. This basic fact enables an army of postmodern charlatans to ramble endlessly about what the Bible means to them. A written text in any language says what it says. In the Bible's case, the text was written before us and existed without us for millennia. To the extent we factor ourselves into its meaning, we are incapable of hearing what the author presented to another audience long before we were born. Don't be misled, Jesus warns. You can't read the signs until the Bible rewrites you. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 4 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 371 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Very often on this program, when we're reading the gospel narratives, whether we're dealing with Mark or Matthew, and hopefully soon other gospels on the program, we will refer to the teaching of St. Paul. This is for two reasons. One, because we have an underlying assumption that the New Testament was the work of a school of writers under the authority of Paul's teaching, that this is a movement in the vein of Paul's letters. And that's a premise that needs to be constantly tested. So as we work through these texts and these themes from the Pauline letters come up, we look to Paul to see what might be going on with the characters in the story of the Gospels. We've also talked about functionality in the past, Richard, and how this isn't a thematic interconnection. It's a grammatical interconnection. Functionality, in other words, making Paul's teaching functional in the Gospel of Matthew, relies on the use of words. And in this morning's excerpt from Matthew, it's clear from the terminology that the Gospel writer is grappling with Paul's letters, first and second to the Thessalonians. This is testing Paul's assertion in Galatians that any gospel that would contradict the gospel that he lays out would be anathema. So the link between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the gospel that Paul preaches comes from Scripture directly. We want to see how, if we make the assumption that they are the same gospel, how are they the same gospel? 
when we see language that pops up in Matthew that also is significant language in First and Second Thessalonians, our eyes are going to be open, ears are going to perk up, and we're going to say, okay, what is the link here? Why is the link here? What is important about the link here? As we've learned working through Genesis with Father Paul on Thursdays, words are significant for different reasons. Sometimes a word is significant because of its frequent use. Other times, a word or two words in a particular syntax within a broader syntax are significant because they appear and then they stop in the mouth of a certain character and then reappear, as Father Paul has explained about the use of the words Lord God in Genesis and the interplay between Eve and the serpent. It's very striking. Other times, words that are used hardly at all have great importance. Words, when they are used for the first time, tell you something about the agenda of the overall story. So we have to pay attention to the technical interplay between texts. It's not simply, let's dream up a cool idea to see how these texts relate. This is not a postmodern class on poetry where author's intent is dismissed in favor of the idolatry of what you project into the story. So we'll talk about that today. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Right away, if someone says to me in Scripture, see to it that no one misleads you, that no one leads you astray, it's not an appeal to the intelligence of the disciples. It's a reminder yet again after they stumbled and said, look at the buildings, that they are looking at the wrong thing for guidance. They are looking for the wrong signs. They should return back to the narrow way and the narrow path of Bible study to learn what God is teaching them so that they can navigate the narrow path, so that they cannot be led astray, taken off the path. Now, this terminology isn't used overtly here in Matthew, but anyone who's been hearing Scripture would immediately recognize that you can only be misled if you're not listening to the voice of the shepherd. Jesus has been wary of them being taken off the path. I mean, that's why not so long ago he was explaining to them the problem with the Pharisees and their teaching, but that they still have to do what they say when it comes from Scripture. People ignore what the Pharisees say that is Scripture, and they pay attention to those things that are not scriptural. I mean, Paul talks about how there is no way that what you eat is going to affect you in your so-called spiritual condition, even though so many people would teach that it is by fasting that you improve your spiritual condition. People want to ignore the spiritual teaching in order to take some other teaching, even if it's the opposite of what the scriptural teaching is. Jesus is more terrified that his disciples are going to be taken away by this false teaching than that something's going to happen to him. You know, don't worry about what's going to happen to you. Just make sure you stay on that narrow way, like you said, Father. Stay on the narrow way. Do what Scripture says. Make sure that that Scripture is written on your heart. 
if that is not inscribed on your brain, which is, I think, a better way of translating written on your heart, inscribed on your brain, then you're going to go astray. You're going to listen to the Pharisees. You're going to listen to false teachers. You're going to be bamboozled by whoever because you don't have that writing inscribed on your brain. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. Here, I can't but think of 1 Corinthians, where Paul explains in chapter 4, as we've mentioned many times, it's a critical, critical teaching in that letter, that he will not judge before the time. He will not pass judgment, and he won't even judge himself. And in the same passage, which deals with waiting for the day of the Lord, he warns them that they have countless teachers in Christ, but not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. You said at the outset that Paul was concerned, not just in First and Second Thessalonians, but very specifically in Galatians, that they would adhere to the one gospel that he laid down. So this is an allusion to the other apostles, the pillars coming in to mislead people, to take them off the path. Remember that Paul is offering the kingdom, and the others are offering themselves, their religion, their clan, their tribe, their culture. That's why Paul accuses the pillars, Peter, James, and John, of shutting Gentiles out of the kingdom. And we just heard this beautiful, excellent critique of the Pharisees in the previous chapter. The purpose of the critique is so that the addressee of the story, hearing the judgment against the characters in the story, would begin their training so as not to be misled. You can't be fooled if the biblical sign is the teaching of Jesus to the Pharisees and the scribes, because then you won't be misled. You will recognize when Peter, James, and John come as wolves in sheep's clothing. And the irony is, you will be deceived by them. This is the trap of Scripture. One of the problems people have with reading this passage is they want to outsmart the Bible. They don't want to be judged by the Bible. When Jesus says, take heed that no man deceive you, I'll be like, okay, I'll be careful. I'll make sure that no one deceives me. Okay, many will come in my name saying I'm Christ. Okay, yeah, got it, Jesus. Anyone who says they're Christ, not going to believe it. Now, that's actually going to be pretty easy because I don't really hear many people saying that they're the Messiah. So if you've got something harder, I'm ready to take that on. That's how we think. So the challenge of this is as a reader, I have to say, okay, Jesus is speaking to the reader of the text. That means me, that I am going to be deceived. So how is it so easy to deceive me by calling yourself the Christ? Like, does anybody do that? That's how we have to read this text. And then we have to go and we have to look. How are we deceived by people who say that they are the Messiah? They are the anointed one. They don't say they're the anointed one of God. But if they go on a podium with a big seal and say, may God bless our country, I am doing the will of God, or if religious groups anoint their 
president or secular leader or even church leader as the leader and take their word as scripture, then they condemn themselves. So as soon as I believe that this human leader has a teaching that's worth listening to, I'm being deceived. Because just like the Pharisee, just like the people who call themselves the anointed ones, I have to ignore what they do and only do what they teach when it is Scripture. It's only Scripture that may lead me. But it's too easy for me to listen to some smooth talker, someone who sounds the way I want to hear them, and Facebook knows what kind of voice I like to hear, and so they like to feed me all the false messiahs, so I'll listen to them instead of listening to Scripture and understanding what Scripture is trying to teach me to do. Look, we've been talking about how Paul controls the Spirit and wields the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, you have the metaphor of the sword of the Spirit. And there's a reason that those hearing Paul's letters over the centuries have come to represent Paul symbolically with a sword. Because the Spirit is something that Paul wields in his letters. You cannot get the Spirit willy-nilly. Paul controls the Spirit. He wields it. It is his power in his letters. And that's a significant point. Because then you have to ask, what are the others wielding? The one who wields the Spirit is the one who is your reference for the Christ. So if the pillars come in wielding something else, wielding circumcision, then they're presenting to you another Christ. So you shouldn't get caught up in all this silly, goofy, Hollywoodian discussion of the Antichrist. It's nonsense. It's utter blather. It's ridiculously silly and illiterate. The Antichrist, functionally here in Matthew, is the false apostle or the false teacher who wields something in opposition to the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians, who wields something in opposition to the Spirit that Paul imparts in Galatians. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not the end. And Rich, as we were looking at the Greek this morning, this connection popped out at you right away with this word that's translated in the New American Standard Bible as frightened. Frightened, or in King James, troubled, comes from the Greek, throiste, the same word that we have in Second Thessalonians. Again, and it's talking about the same circumstances, this end times that the disciples were asking about, you know, when are these things going to be when the temple is going to be destroyed, right? That's really what they're talking about. And Jesus like, don't think about the people who are going to say that they're the king, they're the anointed one, because they're the ones who are going to want to save the temple. They're going to want to save the city. You're going to hear about wars and even like rumors of wars, like maybe a war is going to start because that might be the thing that tears down your city. If you're worried about the city and you hear about an approaching army that's coming to the city, you're going to be worried. You're going to be concerned. You're going to be troubled. You're going to be frightened. Okay. People are so concerned about making sure that the edifice 
that they're counting on is going to stay up. If I'm going to hear this text correctly, the one who tells me, don't worry, the edifice is going to stand. Those people are going to tear down our edifice. We're going to stand up to them and we're going to repulse them and we're not going to have any problems. The one who says, let's defend our people, let's defend our country, let's defend our city, our capital, our temple, whoever that is, is functioning as the Christ for you. But Jesus is a different Christ. Jesus is the one who ushers in the kingdom of heaven. We can't forget this theme that's so important in Matthew. He ushers in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom. It's an empire without city, without wall, without army. Well, shoot, what am I supposed to worry about? That's what Jesus is going to talk about, what you're actually supposed to be worried about. You have to be focused on that text inscribed on your brain. This is the same question that was posed just a few verses ago when we were reminded of the tohu wabohu of Genesis in the metaphor of the rubble of the temple where not one stone would remain standing. This same question, who is your master? To whom do you give your allegiance? Remember in Matthew, you can't serve two masters. So either you serve Christ through the spirit wielded by Paul in his letters, or you serve another Christ wielded by some other false teacher. I want to keep this link between the false teacher, the fake father, the imposter, and the false Christ. Because ultimately, this section isn't just dealing with the end times in Paul's letters, First and Second Thessalonians, it's dealing with the showdown between Paul and his opponents in the New Testament. And the metaphor of the end times is critical because it raises the stakes. It imparts the sense of urgency as death is wont to do in life, that we can't mess this up. There is an impending consequence. There is an impending judgment and impending doom. And there will be a resolution to this question of whom you serve. Do you follow Jesus Christ through the spirit wielded by Paul? Or are you afraid of Caesar? Or are you interested in buildings? Or are you worried about taxes? It's the same question. Whose inscription is this? Whose effigy is this on the coin? What do I care my father's kingdom is coming. This is all coming to an end. What do I care? It's the same question here. And it's an urgent one because in asking Jesus to look at the buildings of the temple, they demonstrated once again that they're still interested in Caesar's coin. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. It's ridiculous the way Christians read this. They take a verse that dismisses fear, and they use it for fear-mongering. Yes, there's an impending judgment, but if Jesus is your master, what are you worried about? He's dealing with this doom, this impending threat, and saying it's not the real threat, just like the coin wasn't the real coin. The real threat is when my father comes to separate the sheep from the goats, as we will learn soon in Matthew. You're worried about the war. You're worried about kingdom against kingdom. I always go back to Psalm 2. God 
sits on his throne and he laughs at the various kingdoms and you're cowering on Facebook and YouTube spreading fear about what's going to happen to the United States, what's going to happen in the world. You have conspiracy theories and all this nonsense. So the very thing that Jesus is making fun of and saying is passing away and is not of import, you're so terrified of losing that you give yourself over to idiotic conspiracy. This is not a fortune cookie. I've said this many times. Saying that nation will rise against nation is like saying the sky is blue. In what era of human history has there ever been a moment when nation wasn't rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom? He is, in the spirit of Genesis, making fun of the cycle of human history, which is a big joke. The whole point in Matthew is to set you free from the fear of the stupidity of the stock market and of the news headlines. I mean, I read the New York Times, but it's hard to take seriously when you're steeped in scripture. They have headlines and they get all excited. And I'm thinking this is the same headline from 50 years ago. This is the same headline from 200 years ago. Oh, yeah, I remember that from the history of the Roman Empire. We're still talking about that today. And they talk about it like it's new and people freak out cancel culture it's this new thing it's not new americans have been lynching people for centuries and before the americans the europeans and everybody else had to deal with mob rule i mean the gospel's all about the pharisees and the scribes worshiping the mob because they don't want to be canceled it's very important that we wake up and not be carried away with nonsense there will be a rumor of war tomorrow when you pick up the new york times don't worry about it there will be a rumor of famine. There'll be bad news because there's always bad news. The question here is from whom do you get your news? Facebook uses an algorithm precisely designed so that I am troubled and that I'm frightened. Facebook is the Antichrist in this way. It seeks to trouble me over wars and rumors of wars. It wants me to be upset about these things. It wants me to think that the end is near because of these things. When Jesus says the exact opposite, do not be afraid, do not be troubled, and this is not the end. That's significant. This is not the end. The end comes after. I, if I do not want to be deceived, I am not allowed to worry about those things. I may not be worried about this edifice called the United States being leveled. Downtown Minneapolis, it might be leveled. It might be. We have some big things coming up. And I'm not allowed to worry about it, to be troubled about it, to be frightened about it. I may not be. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The word odin, which is translated birth pangs or labor pains, relates to 1 Thessalonians. Matthew is signaling to you that he's reading the diptych of First and Second Thessalonians. And if you're familiar with those letters in the original language, and you hear this word odin, you're going to ask, where have I heard that before? It's like the old example we used to use on this program when a star wars character says i have a bad feeling about this if a character says that you think of han solo because that's how it works you don't think of luke skywalker 
you think of Han Solo because he was the first person to use that phrase in the narrative arc of the Star Wars epic. It's the same thing. You hear Odin, you're going to be like, where did I hear that before? Or if you're reading Matthew for the first time, then this is the first place that it occurs. And so when you hear Paul later in the canon, you're going to think back to Matthew. Intratextuality. These stories are working with each other within the canon. You don't need to go outside of the canon. A dictionary is not going to help you understand how Matthew, within the Pauline school, is using this metaphor of birth pangs. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians deals with the Lord's day, the coming judgment. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So he's warning them. Not only should you not worry, but you can't control when it's going to come. All you have is the teaching. For Jesus in this passage and Paul in Thessalonians, a new kingdom is being given birth out of this pain and sorrow. All you can do is just wait. If a woman is giving birth and it's painful, you can't say, well, we better make sure she stops giving birth. It's nonsense. You say, let's help her get through this as quickly as possible. That's how you do it. We need to get through this as quickly as possible but we needed to stay focused on the subject at hand. You know, if I'm holding my wife's hand while she's giving birth and she squeezes it so hard that my knuckles crack and I'm in pain, I'm not allowed to discuss with her how she offended me by squeezing my hand so hard. We have to stay focused on the subject at hand, which is that she give birth. Stay focused. This is what Paul is trying to do with the Thessalonians. Stay focused. This is only the beginning of the end. This just means that birth is upon us. But you're not allowed to be afraid. You're not allowed to worry. Conspiracy theory, no conspiracy theory. It doesn't matter. Okay, fine. Democracy is going to crash. Okay, fine. Bitcoin is going to take over the dollar. Whatever. It doesn't matter. These are the birth pangs to this kingdom. I have to hold tight to this promise of the kingdom in Scripture. If you're afraid, then you are subject to the power of death, as Paul teaches in his letter to the Hebrews. That is the power Caesar wields. We've talked about this ad nauseum. How does Caesar wield the power of death? By promising you security. Just hear First Thessalonians with Matthew while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. It's the birth of the kingdom which is rescuing us from the false promise of security which is wielded against us by our oppressors. They need us to be afraid. Just like the priest in Hosea eats our sin, the emperor eats our fear. That is what feeds him. And you're absolutely correct in your reading of Matthew, Richard, and it parallels 1 Thessalonians. You are being counseled by Paul not to believe the lie of the promise of security 
not to be afraid and at the same time to learn how to read the signs, as Jesus said just a few verses ago. To be alert and, in the words of Paul, to fulfill your calling as sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, not to see when the war the New York Times is worried about is going to happen, but to recognize that that's not the real news. The real news comes from this teaching, which Paul wields against us, heralding the coming of the kingdom by the power of the Spirit. That's why this business of reading signs is a very serious matter. There are signs. They're not magical. They're not mystical. Everybody knows in modern science that reality is subjective. Literature shapes the reality you experience. Literature also bridges the gap. Language bridges a gap between people so that we can have an understanding, a shared understanding of reality. That's why the country is splitting, because we don't have a shared understanding of reality anymore. So if you're looking at the buildings of the temple and you're still impressed, you're not communing with Jesus and the reality of his father's teaching. You're not. You're seeing what Caesar wants you to see. Ooh, look at the buildings. Being able to read the signs, we have to stick close with Scripture. This has to be our text. This has to be, like you said, the literature that forms our imagination, that forms our thinking, that forms our actions. Significantly, if we see wars, if we see an economy collapse, if we see the end of this nation as a would-be citizen of the kingdom of heaven, my charge doesn't change. I still take care of the widow and the orphan and the stranger, no matter what. If it's peace, if it's war, to the homeless person, what do they care? To the refugee, what do they care? They want peace, sure. Only God grants them peace. It's for me to follow Scripture under any circumstances. It doesn't matter what circumstance I find myself in. If it's the beginning of the ends or toward the end of the ends, because Christians, they obsess about how close are we to the end, you know? The doomsday clock. Christians love the doomsday clock. It's not about the doomsday clock. The end's going to come when it comes. But before then, I must stick close with this gospel of taking care of those who are in need, my needy neighbor, at all times. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.